Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. Yes, that's it. We're live, just like that. Amazing technology. And man, this one is going to be bopping because outside it's a little stormy. So inside, we're just going to, we're going to smash myths today. I'm just stoked for this one. My guest is a fellow agency owner, uh, founder, B2B marketing strategist. We are going to, it's like watching two wizards hurl lightning bolts at the world. This is going to be fantastic. Um, she's a speaker, a storyteller, author of two books. Two books? It's crazy, people. Even writing one book is insane. Founder, CEO of uh, B2B Marketing Strategist at Marketing Interactions, Ardeth Albi. How are you, ma'am? I am great. So excited to be here, Casey. Man, I almost lost myself in your introduction. I was having <laughs> so much fun with that. Uh, so this is going to be fantastic. This is our marketing leadership series we're talking strategy, talking technology, talking process, talking personas and, and data. And we're going to poke at some of the analysts that don't know what they're talking about. We're going to throw down some fire here. So I would like to pass you this. Oh, hold on. It's heavy. All right. Here you go. This is Thor's hammer. Go ahead. Take Ugh. that <laughs> and smash for me some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconceptions you've been hearing out there. Yeah, well, I'd like to start with one that just really ticks me off, and that is when an analyst firm, and we'll name them, Serious Decisions, comes out and says, personas are dead. You don't need to build personas anymore by talking to anyone. You can do it based on data. So you can collect all this data and create your personas, and it's the silver bullet, easy way to do it, and you no longer need to put in the effort to talk to anybody. They seriously I, said that? They did. And it was on LinkedIn and I jumped in being my usual blunt self <laughs> and, you know, basically said, this is bullshit and you can't do that because the only thing you're going to get from data is what somebody does. You're not going to find out why they did it, what they intended in the first place, what they wanted, if they actually got what they wanted, um, you know, and you have to do the hard work. There is no silver bullet to marketing. I'm sorry, but there's not. And, you know, one of the biggest things I'm seeing, I'm kind of a research buff, so I download a lot of data and research. And if you watch it over the years, we've been doing content marketing for a long time. We're not getting yeah. any better at it, you know, yeah. and marketers are struggling to engage buyers to even understand who they're engaging, you know, and they freely admit it. And part of the reason for it is, is because they don't do the work. You know, and even if they do try to build personas, I'm working right now with someone who got in a room with their marketing team, probably over lunch, and created a persona that actually has nothing usable about it at all. Not one single thing. Really? And I'm trying to figure out how to break that to them. But, <laughs> you know. Like, what, what does it sound like? Is it like they just sort of, they're drinking, this is a beer lunch where they're just like, hey, yeah, this sounds like a good profile. I mean, how, how do you go so wrong like that? How, well, how, how does this happen? At, they looked at the overall organization goals for their ideal customer, yeah. right? So as a big company, what, what are the company's goals? Well, okay, great. How does that translate to what the persona in their role has to achieve? 
what's their version of that? How do they feed into that? What part do they play in that? And you can't just look at the overall company and say, well, here's what your company wants to achieve, so go do this. It, it's not going to resonate because it doesn't have any direct impact on them and their role, what they're responsible for, what their performance is based on, any of those things. And then they went and looked at stuff like, well, during each stage of the process, what kind of content are they going to look for? And they did it by format. Well, that tells you a whole lot, oh, right? No. They may want a white paper in some stage, but do you know about what? No. You know, where are they going to go? Well, vendor websites or analyst sites. Great. Which ones? Industry sites. Great. Which ones? You know, where do they mm -hmm. hang out? If you don't know that, how would you go place a native ad, you know, piece of content on a site that's going to intersect with them? How would you figure out, you know, where to be? You know, what social media to be on? What, you know, what are they interested in? And so we really need to figure out based on their perspectives, what do they care about? And I'm sorry, but data isn't going to tell you that. You know, it won't yeah. tell you the why, it just tells you the what. Right. And to your point, your own biases are so in the way. And, and you can't really open, op ask open-ended questions on those things. And to your point, it's that secondary question too. Uh, you, yeah, I, I imagine some like ugly looking survey monkey survey going out and people are like, first of all, no one wants to fill it out. And then no. like the four people who probably got good grades in school that fill it out. Uh, oh, I don't know what happened, but what? And then you get this data back and you geared the questions. I, have you seen those where you get like a survey where the question is geared? It's like, what's your favorite part about this car or this thing, this product, this software, this B2B? And there's three options. There's no option that says your list is complete bullshit. Right. I hate every single thing you suggested. So you have to pick one of the three. And they're like, oh, see, we told you profitability of pricing was like key here. It's like, actually. Well, yeah, yeah. And it's, if you look at who produced the survey or who sponsored it, yeah. you can pretty much tell where the bias sits in the answers for the questions. But some yeah. of the things that I find really interesting in research is that you'll see an answer to a question like our main goal is to, you know, get to know our prospects better, be more relevant to them. And then further down in the survey, you'll see this answer to a question. Well, how do you learn about your customers? And at the very bottom of the list is actually talking to them. You know, I posted about that on my blog too. And I was like, okay, I'm, I, I'm not connecting the dots here. If you're top, one of your top priorities is to be more relevant to your customers and get to know them. But yet, at the bottom of the list of how you're going to do that is talking to them. What are you thinking? You know, yeah. so you see these surveys where they'll say one thing and then further on in the survey, the way they respond to a question that would feed into that is totally the opposite of what they said and isn't going to help them do that. And so, you know, I love research, but you have to use it with a grain of salt, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, like directional. So question, I mean, serious decisions, they're not, not complete idiots here, but they've had some good stuff come out. But what was this just one analyst going crazy and they, they need to like bring them her back in the herd, whoever wrote this thing? Or is this like their party line? And why yeah. would they why would they even say that? Well, because everybody's on this AI craze, you oh. know, and they think, you know, the next thing yeah. that they came out and said, which I just started laughing, was that the predefined nurture is dead. So AI is now going to assess what the visitors on your website want to see and serve it up to them. 
And I could, I just sat there and I thought, and most of my clients are big enterprise companies, tons of resource, tons of money, you know, big teams. Yeah. And they have no prayer in hell of having that happen in a good way. Because number one, most people don't have the content that AI would say based on what somebody's doing, we should give them this. Well, if this isn't there, what are they going to give them? You know, so I, I thought, you know, in theory, that's a, a great thing. But in reality, it's probably a disaster waiting to happen, you know, and, yeah. you know, I just kind of think, what the hell are these people thinking? But, you know, it's, it's like I was at Content Marketing World and I stood up on the stage and said, if you don't have the resource to address, you know, five personas, don't create five, only create one or create yeah. two. Oh, I love that. You know, and so one of the comments, I got my feedback and one of the comments was finally a mature marketer who's willing to say, we don't have to do everything and, you know, put it within boundaries that we can address given the resource that we have. Because so many people are out there saying all these grandiose things like you should be doing this. And then people are running around thinking, God, we're so behind. We're not doing any of this stuff that all right. these gurus say we should be doing. You know, we're missing the boat. We got to go do this. And they buy all this shiny technology or whatever they're doing. And they can't execute because they're not ready. They don't have the foundation in place. They haven't done the basic steps. And quite frankly, if any company that doesn't have a persona would create just one and just address that one, they would see a difference. Do you know what I mean? You don't have to do the whole thing all at once. You can do a pilot project, you can do a, a experiment, you know, right. and you can see the difference. And then that will get some executive support behind you to go and do more. You know, if you're afraid, you don't have the executive support for it. But the one thing that drives me the craziest out of all of this is that leadership has lost their ever loving minds because they're telling marketers, you are going to be graded based on how many leads you bring in the door aka form fills right that's not a lead <laughs> right. and so if that's what they're judged on are they really going to go and tell the right story get to know the customer build the persona because all they care about is i have to generate 500 form fills this month in order to pass my performance review so i'm going to go get them to download this white paper if it kills me you know i mean and whether or not that results in anybody who's actually intending to buy anything ever you know, or even could is beside the point. And I just, you know, it just drives me crazy that we're still focused on this volume and these metrics that are more like vanity metrics than meaningful yeah. anything. And no wonder sales hate you, you know, <laughs> because you're <laughs> right? giving them all this garbage. Garbage. You might as well have given them a straight list you bought from some creepy vendor in Eastern Europe for, you know, 80 euro. Yeah, <laughs> some bad <exactly>. data <laughs> yeah because we know that we can get marketers uh, marketers can get prospects of any shapes and sizes prospect not even being a good word for that we can get random people to fill out forms you know yeah. make the button orange make a short form uh -huh. compel uh -huh. them to fill it out and drive people there and now you're just wasting all your salespeople's time you're right you just passed the buck you didn't you didn't i think your earlier point was do the work you know? Yeah, it is. And, and people who are passing form completions to sales as leads are nuts in the first place. You well, know, because but to be fair, isn't that what sales is asking for, even if they don't know any better? Not really. No? Uh, well, unless they, unless they don't have enough pipeline to work, you know, then they'll right. take anything that breathes, but you know, because I, I, I work with a lot it. of sales that are like that. They're like, give me more leads. Uh, I don't have well, enough. 
Well, and that's quite often because they sort through them all and you gave them a hundred and they go, okay, I can work these two. So give me more. Right. You know, and so you have to look at what's behind the give me more thing. Right. Um, right. Yeah. But, yeah. But, you know, I mean, I've worked with companies where we do personas, we build the content marketing strategy out, we spend the right time nurturing them, we actually deliver sales leads with a history that we can show them of mm. what they're interested in, what they've done, so that sales can actually engage them. We help with sales enablement efforts, and they're able to actually get in meetings and progress deals and close more pipeline. And marketers are now being charged to take responsibility for contribution to pipe. How in the heck are we going to do that if we're not generating the right leads and if we're not helping them get to the point where they want to talk to a salesperson? Right, right. So, I mean, 62% of them, according to Forrester, of buyers say they can go out online, do their own research and build their own short list of vendors without ever talking to one. That ought to scare the crap out of all of us. You know, so, I agree with that. I think I, I would do the same thing, right? I think our team. Here's what's happening. If you look at Gartner, what they're coming out and saying is that, you know, that it used to be that if you created quality, quality information, right, you get the right leads. Now what buyers are saying, you know, 89%, I think somewhere around there are saying all the information we're coming into contact with is quality. That's not the problem. The problem is there's too much and it all conflicts with each other. Like one vendor will say this, another vendor will say that. How do we know which is the truth? Right. But then you look at the expanding buying committee and let's say there's, I think Gartner's now up to like 11 people on the buying committee. And you look at them, each one of those people goes out and reads four or five pieces of content and gen from whatever resource they find, generates their own ideas based on that information. And they all come back together and none of them agree on anything. And so it's adding 20% more time to the buying process because they have to spend all that time deconflicting all this information, right? So Gartner's come out with this new thing that I think is really interesting, which they call sense-making, just helping buyers understand what information they need, what's valid, because there's so much information now. Mm. It's, you know, they don't know what to do. You know, so they lack confidence in making a decision. And that's, that means right. they're going to say, what we have is good enough. Thank you, but no. And that's right. not where we need them to be. It's an interesting challenge to think about with in the past, it was not enough information, but now it's everybody's getting on this game and they're just saying what they want to say. Like 92.5% of all statistics are made up on the spot, but I just made that up. But now who do you trust? Right? So it's like, ah, oh, there's so much information and sense making. How do you recall what they were saying about like, how how do you you got to earn that trust with authority? It, how do you stand well, out when you're so noisy around? Well, yeah, it's uh, that's still a challenge. In right. fact, I think the most interesting thing about it is Gartner's most known. Well, CEB, who they bought, is most known for the Challenger sale, right? And oh, so they bought them, huh? Yeah, and okay. so Gartner's now coming out with sense making, and they can't reconcile the two. They're two different things. The Challenger is inside looking out at your buyers and sense making is outside looking in from your buyer's perspective. And so it's a Can you explain that? What you mean by that? Well, sure. The challenger sale is is built around challenging people, right? right? So challenging their status quo, bringing them insights they didn't have, trying to wake them up to see things differently, yeah. right? Yeah, sense yeah. making is saying, "Okay, you've got all this information. 
we understand where you are you're confused you're frustrated you know let's let's help you make sense out of this you know trying to simplify it trying to level it out for them mm. instead of trying to disrupt them so it's it's a different thing taking more of the customer's perspective into account and so it just goes to show the shift in buying what's happened what's different what's changed and the fact that we have you know maybe half of sales reps making quota closing deals and almost as many deals ending in no decision because mm -hmm. the risk is too great to change yeah you know we've got to get better at helping them mitigate that risk and building the confidence that they're making a good decision and so what gartner is saying or ceb is that it's it's this balancing act between building up the confidence in the buyer which will also hopefully help diminish their skepticism in you as a seller with an agenda, right? So you're trying to be really helpful. So feeding into their whole buyer enablement thing, how do we enable buyers to buy? And right. um, it's something that really needs to happen, especially in complex sales, which is where I spend most of my time, you know, but there's so many things to consider and so many impacts outside of just the department that might be buying the software. Like what right. processes change for everybody else, you know, and how does that impact them and their teams and whatever. So do you, do you, do you see the sense making is just another thing or is, are they raising a valid point? Cause I see what you mean about the challenger sale. You're saying, no, actually we know you better than you even know yourself. And with the sense making, you're kind of saying, well, what have you, you're hearing a lot of things. What have you been hearing? Let me try to help you sort through it. Um, right. Well, I, I think it's, you know, in the way I'm looking at it, and from my perspective, it's kind of about, okay, you've got this confused buyer who's got all this stuff. And how can you um, bring them some context? How can you arouse their curiosity instead of, you know, transition them from overwhelmed to curiosity? So they'll say, well, yeah, I'm interested in this part of it. Can you tell me more? Can you simplify this out for me? You know, and I think that's, you know, what salespeople are going to have to learn to do. Yeah. And I think marketers are going to have to help them because I think ultimately, given the reliance on content, we're going to have to start figuring out how to help people make sense out of the problem they're trying to solve rather than just providing more information. Makes sense. Is that like helping them, giving them the framework? I like that you said context, helping yeah, them simplify. see the birds, you know, the birds from the trees, from the woods. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Simplifying it and focusing on Simplify. what are the main components they need to think about, right? Not everything, you know, we're dumping the kitchen sink on them. And so we have to really figure out what, and this is why personas become even more important. So if you look at this problem they're trying to solve, mm -hmm. there's probably given like the complex tech stuff I help clients sell, there's probably a bunch of different stuff that figures into that, a bunch of different features and, you know, other stuff, which are the most important to that persona mm. what do they care about the most what's going to have the biggest impact on what they're responsible for how could you just simplify that piece of them get them really interested in that so that it kind of becomes the anchor for them in consideration of that solution rather than looking at well this solution has 57 features and this one has 72 which one should i choose that's not the way you know no wonder people are overwhelmed you know, and so yeah. we have to we have to really think about outcomes. We have to think about, you know, what value are they really going to get? 
And, you know, nine times out of 10, when I'm talking to customers, what I hear them say a lot of the time is, you know, when I ask them, what do you wish you would have known before you bought? And <laughs> nine times out of 10, it's like, well, we didn't really understand what we had to have prepared in order to move into this new technology. So our implementation took too long. It was, you know, required a whole lot more work than we thought because we had to redo all this other stuff so it would fit into the new system and, you know, whatever all those things are. And so we need to really help people understand, you know, what they're getting into instead yeah. of just trying to close the deal because they want to solve the problem. Yeah. And of, co of course, of course it took more work than you thought it would. Of course it took more work than the, the rep for the software that sold it to you maybe hinted at you would take. Yeah, I definitely see this. And I've also seen the challenge where that sort of SaaS or big tech sales rep, if you're not careful, if you didn't do your homework, didn't do the work, then very often if people are like, well, what should we do? And you're like, well, this tool can do anything. So you can do it however you'd like. And they're like, ooh, we want to jump off a bridge with it. And they're like, great, <laughs> great. I'll send you the DocuSign. I'll yeah. send you the SOW. You can jump off that bridge. This, this thing could do anything for you. It won't save you, but you can, it'll jump with you. And it, it's like, no, like, like actually tell them what they need to do. But, you know, it's also interesting that you mentioned the main components to think about. This just reminds me of that, that old practice of, helping your customer write the RFP, mm -hmm. telling them what they need to be looking at. Yeah, I know. And it's a, it's a struggle to figure out how do you get salespeople into the conversation earlier. And right. interestingly enough, they've, you know, a lot of buyers have gone from, we don't want to talk to them at all to, we'd love to talk to them earlier in the buying process when we're trying to figure out what we're doing. But the problem is, they don't bring any insights worth our time, right? you know, because it's not about the feeds and speeds of the product as much as it is about, can it solve the problem? What am I going to get different than what I have now? You know, those kinds of things. What's the future going to look like? You know, I talked to a customer the other day for a client and one of the things they said that they didn't do while they were buying was really pay attention to what does the future look like with this product? What does mm -hmm. the roadmap look like? Where are we going to end up in a couple of years? Are we still going to be relevant with this? Or is it going to be relevant to us? Or are we going to have to rip and replace again? Right. You know, and, and uh, so they said we need to learn to focus on those things instead of just our immediate need. Right. You know, and salespeople need to help them think that through. That's so true. So true. You know, at the beginning, you when you smashed that first myth, it was around the idea of personas are dead. You just do, just get the data. Um, and then I love what you also said about, you know, if you don't have the content for five, don't create five. <laughs> don't feel like you need to make. And the cool thing is with personas, unless you're dealing with you know the multiple people to your to the bigger sale. You don't usually have as many personas as you probably have no. previously segmented. You might have. 12 industries, but you may only have three personas. There's, there's certain, right. you know, and then times well, for how many roles you have, I suppose. Well, yeah. And people make the mistake of equating title to persona and it's not. Ooh, tell me about that. And so, you know, most of the personas I built, there's maybe five, six, seven titles that could be that persona. And so it's about the role and responsibility. So if you look for, you know, an easy example would be, uh, VP of marketing in a small company is the equivalent of a, you know, director of marketing in a bigger company sometimes. Right. And so 
you know, if you're not focused on, you know, a lot of my clients, of course, divide their segments by small, medium enterprise mm -hmm. um, or by industry. But let's say you have five industries you sell into. It's one persona and then five pivots. What shifts yeah. for manufacturing? What shifts for financial services? What shifts for technology? You know, they're shifts, but it's still the same persona. They're still responsible for the same stuff. You're just going to talk about it a little differently because their industry has them look at things differently, you know? Right. And so, but the other thing about personas and why I say don't build them if you can't use them is because if all of a sudden in six months you say, okay, we're ready to use this persona, it will have changed. It won't really? be the same anymore. Really? And so I have one client where within a year we discovered that their persona had drastically changed just because of um, the changes in the technology they were using and what that had meant to shift their perspective and how their actual department functioned. And do you, so do you know any, like, any more specifics on that? Like how, how does a, how does that persona, did they, they be, became a more mature buyer or? Well, their objections that we were focused on yeah. were, um, and this is a conservative persona, in finance and their perspective sure. was we don't like things we can't control we don't like the unknown we don't yep. want to change we like it the way it is you know we were addressing all of those things we'll come to find out six months later we have to change we have to embrace digital transformation we wow. are embracing it so therefore all the content that we had created and all of the things to answer the objection of we, we want, we don't want to like change, you know, we don't, we aren't adopting technology is now how fast can we adopt it? What should wow. we adopt first? We need to change And for another client. It was, well, hold on. You saw this, you saw this shift and this wasn't just another persona. This was, no, this is the same persona, but same we had persona. to go back and relook at what are their objections? What obstacles do you confront when you're trying to sell to this persona? And they had changed, you know? Wow. So it wasn't any longer that we don't want to change. It was help us change faster, you know? And how do huh. we do it safely? And they were leaning into it, which is a totally different posture than just six months ago when I interviewed a bunch of their clients to build personas. Wow. And then we had another, I have another client who, we built a slate of five personas for them, big global company um, selling contact centers and an actual persona disappeared off the face of the map and a new one took its place. So all of a sudden really? we were looking at who disappeared. You know, <laughs> like what, what kind of like a, well, <laughs> um, it was a process person that, wow. that got switched out and, but it was just interesting because it wasn't a primary player, yeah. but it was a player that was, if they said no, that could derail the whole thing. So you have to know how to counter those things, but it was just really interesting. And I think that one took two years to show up. And then we went out to do a refresh and we started looking at their new customers and the groups of people that they had engaged with. And we're like, where's this persona? It's not there. Who is this other person? And we went, whoa, things shifted. You know, so we had to go build a new persona. You know, I guess as much as, you know, change is always a good thing. But uh, I, even in my mind, I thought, wouldn't it be great if personas just stayed the same? So everything else in the marketing world is changing. The tech is changing. But at least I know my customer. I know them since 1960 and they're the same. But no, they buy, they're buying differently. They're evolving too. 
So that's a really good reminder that even if you do build these things, you got to, you got to keep in tune with your customer. You can't, you can't just write it off. And I think we see companies that do that and they, they get surpassed. Well, and the other thing you have to look at too, which I think is really interesting in B2B, we always think we're different than B2C, right? Sure. And so, but here's the thing. What do you use your smartphone for today as a consumer? Everything. And, then, <laughs> and so when you go to work, do you say, okay, I no longer use my smartphone for anything. I'm going to use my laptop for everything. No. No, you still kind of use it too. So, yeah. yeah. So are we, you know, producing content that performs well in mobile? Or are we not? Because they're going to, you know, and I saw an interesting conversation on LinkedIn a while back where somebody asked where people read their email. And the comments indicated that people check their email on mobile. If they're going to read it, they'll wait till they get to their laptop Mm. or whatever, but they'll delete it. If it's not something they think they want to read later, they'll delete it without even reading it off their mobile. So if you can't pass the mobile test, Right. If what shows test. up in your preview line or your subject line in a mobile phone isn't enough to say, oh, I have to read that later. You're deleted before they even click to open you. And they'll right. do that while they're sitting in a meeting, right? When they're bored. That's right. Or, or, or on a podcast. <laughs> no, just, yeah. I, yeah. No. So, you know, we have to pay attention to what the trends are for consumers, but also their experiences are setting their expectations, which is why B2B e-commerce is is growing, you know, not for my clients, of course, because they sell big multi-million dollar solutions, most of them, but, you know, it's, but B2B e-commerce is is growing quite a lot. How well are we doing that? You Mm. know, I did a project for Aero Electronics where, they're selling to engineers, electronic components, right? We did this whole looking at their personas around how do they use the website and as a website improvement project and how to better engage them on the website so they could sell more through the website, you know, and en- engaging engineers is an interesting um, effort, I can tell you. Yeah, <laughs> so. it is interesting. Mm. It helps if you're just partially engineer yourself so you can appreciate it and kind of geek out and nerd out with them for just a second, create that relationship, then ask some of those questions. I know. But the interesting thing for them is they have engineers that work in like at like Boeing. Okay. Yeah. And then they have makers who are hobbyists, right. Who have a whole different perspective and they're trying to do some, some stuff that's really off the wall, different and, you know, whatever. And like build a flux capacitor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Go back to the future. And, so uh, these would be two different so, personas then for that well, electronics yeah. company. Uh-huh. It, and you would sell dramatically in market and sell to them dramatically different. You'd offer different options. They have different goals. And you said roles and responsibilities. They, mm-hmm. There's a different goal in mind for both of those people. Well, and yeah, they buy there differently. Is. Yeah. They do. And so it was fascinating. I'm always fascinated when I look at different buyers and what they care about for my clients. You know, yeah. it's always really interesting. But, uh, you, you know, it's when people come to me and they say, well, can't you just create a content marketing strategy for me? We don't have time for personas. And I just sit there and look at them and say, who do you want me to create it for? And yeah. what should we talk about? What do they care about? You know? Yeah. And so you really can't. I don't know how to do it without knowing who the customer is, unless you're just creating crap that way that doesn't resonate with anybody, except maybe you. You know, yeah. and the other thing I always love is when I'm on a conference call or in a meeting with a team I'm working with, and, you know, we're talking about a, a piece of content and 
one of two things happen. Either the customer is never mentioned. They talk about what mm. they're interested in. Let's create a white paper about this. I mm -hmm. think it's really cool, you know? Or they say, we can't create a white paper around that because I wouldn't read it. Well, you are not the persona. You know right. what I'm saying? And they forget. They get all invested in this stuff and it's kind of like, well, I wouldn't do that. So why would we do that to our, our customer? Even if you're a marketer selling to marketers, you are not your customer. You know? Right. <laughs> so, right. Or, or at least you may be only one of, of multiple personas. Uh -huh. For sure. So, but the other thing people try to do is talk to everybody with one piece of content. And I don't know how you do that. How do you do that and be helpful to anybody? And so what you end right. up is this piece of content that is so high level that it doesn't say anything helpful to anybody who reads it, you know, and that's a big mistake, you know, and they do it because they say, well, we don't have resource to create five pieces of content. We only have resource to create one. Well, I say, bullshit i say you can create five pieces of content if you create one good piece and then spin it for yeah. each different person do you right. know what i mean because it's not necessarily that the information is different but maybe how you present it or how it applies to them mm. but you could create one solid piece of content and then spin it based on what each persona cares about have you seen a good example of that and and, and how I, well, is it I've just changing words? <laughs> are you, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Are you changing words and sentences? Do you? you well, it depends on what it is. Now, yeah. for example, um, one of my clients, um, Sykes, it's the contact center oh, um, yeah. company. We created content that was for the different personas. And what we were able to do, because it was information they all needed, yeah. was change the introduction and the conclusion and keep the body the same. Oh, yeah. So we did that. Um, it, uh, we also did a series where we had to make some adjustments for terminology and, you know, some of the ways we phrase some sentences had to be rewritten to apply right. to the different personas, but it wasn't a total rewrite. Right. Essentially it was the same content. We just updated it based on what each persona would care about. So it can be simple. It can be a little more complex, but we don't have to reinvent the wheel. And I think that's what marketers don't get. Right. Because they don't really understand their customers, so they think they have to create all this different content. By the same token, you know, there are companies out there that are just creating content because <laughs> some executive said our theme this quarter is, you know, X. And so they create all this content about this theme, oh, which is yeah. actually one-off content that doesn't connect a story to anything. And so then they say, okay, we need a nurture program. Use that content. We need to get more out of it. How? It doesn't right. connect together. It doesn't right? it's do anything. One off yeah. things because you came up with a bunch of ideas about we could talk about this, we could talk about that, you know, and you wrote this content, but it doesn't build a story. So it's hard to reuse it. And that's a shame because it's a waste. Everything yeah. you create should be able to be repurposed and reused in like five to 10 different ways whether it's combined together with other things to create a bigger piece Ooh. or there's a longer piece and then a shorter blog post or their social media posts, or you decide to turn it into a video, yeah. you know, or whatever, but you should be able to reuse it, use it as part of a nurture stream because it fits into a storyline. Right. So when you have the right content marketing strategy, everything you create should work together with everything else so right. that you can mix it and match it in different ways. That's how you become more efficient and save from ripping your hair out over the whole. Yeah, it, it work. The whole phrase was, you know, work smarter, not harder. 
Absolutely. Uh, I love to take you back because I, I get that I, I need to make sure I'm clear on what persona is because I know we've talked about this um, in marketing before. I know there's a lot of vendors that want to tell you what a persona is, but what, I mean, you're doing this day in and day out. You're in your work. And if it didn't work, you wouldn't be here. You'd be selling yeah. fast food or something, you know, like it, it's working. So what is a persona to you? What are the parts that make it up? Yeah. So a persona is basically, a, if you will, fictional characterization of a target segment, a person in your a target segment. And, and it's the trick to a good persona is that it's based on commonalities that you find across the people representative of that segment. And I'll tell you why. Because let's say you drive a Corvette and wear red tennis shoes. You're maybe the only one in the persona right. segment that does that, right? So yeah. one or of the things Jeep, I hate. Jeep Wrangler is, and flip flops. That would right. Be, yeah. <laughs> right. So you can't use that. And right. so we need to look at what information can we use. But if it's that you're all trying to um, increase efficiency for your teams so that they can get products to market faster and everything, you know, and that's a common theme across your persona, then that's something to address. So we right. have to look at the things that are common. What do they care about? Because it, as a marketer, we're trying to reach the widest swath of people, right? right? And so a salesperson, on the other hand, would look at one customer and say, I love that you wear red tennis shoes. You know, yeah. that's really cool. My kid loves green ones, you know, or whatever to yeah. establish rapport. But as a marketer, when we're looking at going out and engaging, I have clients that have 200,000 people in a segment on their list. How are you going to engage the widest swath of those people? It's by focusing on what are the commonalities that they care about in that right. segment. And so we have to look at that. But a persona needs to. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the demographic information can go. I don't care how old they are. I don't care how much money they make. I don't care if they live in the suburbs with two kids and a dog because I can't use any of that right. as a B2B marketer. What I care about is how long have they been in their careers on average? Are they new and they're trying to climb the ladder, you know, so they're willing to take more risk? Have they been around a long time and maybe they're looking to leave a legacy of something great behind because they're getting ready to retire, for example? Have they been around long enough to know where the bodies are buried so they can get a deal done, you know? Right. What are those things? So I care about that. I care about um, some psychographic details. Like in some personas I've done, what comes up when I, because I'll go out and look at like a hundred LinkedIn profiles, you know, representative of a persona I'm building and what you see and what people say and the recommendations. And you start seeing this common trend across people in this role that they're mentors to their team, you know? So then you you can create content based on, how this helps their team, right? How they can help their team by doing this. Right. Um, You're you looking at these profiles out, and kind of right. just sort of, yeah. And so you start seeing stuff that's repeated again and again, and they're detail oriented. Well, that's different. That means your content needs to be really specific. You need to have mm. evidence-based stuff rather than a story that weaves around, right? So you need to look at some of those things, but mostly what you need to figure out are, you know, what are their overall objectives? What are they responsible for? What are their obstacles? Like who's going to push back and say, no, we don't want this solution in our company. No, you're not doing this to my team because it's going to roll over into my area. You know, what are the sources of pushback? No, right. HR says 
oh, we're worried about user adoption. If you don't get everybody to adopt this, you know, then we're not going to make the ROI that you're saying we're going right. to get or whatever, right? So what are the pushbacks? Um, and then my favorite, my absolute favorite part of a persona is the questions. And so what I'm looking for is what questions, what do they need to know when they started looking for the solution, as they learned more about it, what did they ask all the way across the buying process? Because if you take that list of questions, it almost organizes itself into a flow, right? You're not mm. going to ask, you know, a certain question before you've learned basic information. You know what I mean? So you can look right. at, well, after they learn the answer to this, then they might ask this next thing. Right. And so if you have this set of questions and you could say, okay, how do we as a company answer those questions? What's our answer? There's your content flow, you know? And so right. a persona should help you understand that as well as, you know, what formats should we put it in? You know, I have, it's really interesting. I have one client where every single customer interview and I did a ton of them came back and said, our two favorite things are conferences and webinars. I've never heard that before. Interesting. Conferences and webinars, you know, by the same token, I have very few people say we love video. Very few. Yep. Marketers are out there and the research says, go invest in video. Video is the new thing. Most of the buyers I talk to don't have time to watch video, but you know why they don't like it? Because they can't archive it and highlight it. And when they need a specific piece of information, they have to go watch the dang thing again to find mm. it. So versus if they get a white paper or something else, they can archive it, they can highlight it, they can mark the important stuff, they can share it easily with others and say, look at page five, paragraph two, you right. know, or whatever. You can't do that with a video. And so um, mm. customers, when you look at customers, that's a different persona, right? Because I already bought your stuff. So it's how do you keep them and grow them? Customers will watch videos because they want the how-to stuff. You know, they want to see right. how do we use your product better and whatever. But buyers, not so hot on videos. I haven't talked to a lot of them that want to see a video. And so I find it really interesting because marketers are shoving tons of money into video. And I'm kind of like, did you talk to your customers? Shots fired, video yeah. vendors. <laughs> What's up? What is up? Well, and I think it it's, can be good, yeah. but a lot of videos are just terrible. Yeah, it's true. You know, you've got talking heads out there doing God knows what, and, you know. Yeah. Except for but, these two talking heads. These are brilliant talking <laughs> exactly. heads. Exactly. Except for us. You know, but, we do have show notes. So if anyone out there is like, what the hell, Casey? We're, I don't have to write notes down on this podcast. Christina does an amazing job. And there are all these bulleted notes on the oh, website. Wonderful. So, But yeah, <laughs> no, I, back to your point, though. Yeah, so interesting around the different aspects. Do you, do you lay it out by, I mean, I know the title's not the thing, but by the role, do you say, okay, I need to talk to, let's say it's a marketing software and tech and you're like, I need to talk to that sort of marketing user and then I need to talk to the marketing person's boss and maybe the C, do you, do you start by interviewing particular roles or do you just talk to everybody and sort it out? Well, the first thing I do is talk to, the whole marketing team and the whole sales, not the whole sales team, but select salespeople, leaders, as well as reps. I want to know what the company's um, perspective is about go to market, who they're talking to. So I want to hear from the reps who they're in conversations with. Got it. And who they want to be in conversations with. Got it. And then we look at, at their buyers and it's like, what contacts do you have at your customers that I can talk to? Who was involved in buying? And I try to get companies or customers that have bought within the last year 
So yeah. they still remember the pain they went through or whatever it was when they bought. Yeah. At your point, it's still the valid persona because it yeah. might be out of date. Right. And so I want to, you know, really get their experience. And so it depends on who they can find me. And quite often, like I said, there will be a multitude of titles because, you know, I mean, chief bottle washer, chief guru of customer, mm -hmm. whatever. People have weird titles. They you can't do. rely on titles anymore. No. So, you know, but it's, it really starts with talking to the people at the company and then looking at their customers, looking at their database, who's in it, you know, what is the distribution? Because the other thing is, let's say we do all this work and, and they thought, and usually my customers think coming in, we need to talk to the C-suite. Oh, no, you don't. You're not selling anything strategic enough for the C-suite to look at. They'll mm. come in at the end or a couple times during the process, but really they're going to delegate to their team to buy this thing. And so then who is in your database? Well, it's all fine and dandy to build your persona, but if you don't have the people that match that persona in your database, then what? Then what are you yep. going to do? Then what? What happens? So we've had to look at that and say, okay, you have a client right now where we need to get to a persona that they don't have in their database. So it's like, okay, what are we <laughs> going to do to generate enough insight to write some content to get, you know, develop some lead gen and that kind of thing and go in and buy in a list from discover.org is not the answer. Oh, you know? I love it. Shots fired. <laughs> Sorry, discover.org. It's just not it. We got to talk to our customers first. Yeah. Well, it's not that they're bad. They actually have really good information for good data. But I mean, you can enhance the data you have right. with a data provider. But, you know, to just go and call a list because you don't have them is it doesn't mean that if somebody fills out a form, they're going to be your buyer. Right. You have to go out and get people who are interested enough, you know. So it's it's sometimes a challenge, but we need to look at, okay, if we create these personas, can we use them? You right. know, because otherwise it's a waste of money and time, you know. And to your point, create one. Get to know what those questions are. So you can create the flow, the nurture, comes straight from those questions. Answer, just answer what they're asking for, right? Yep. I was talking to a client the other day who wanted a particular training for lightning, and they knew exactly what they're looking for. And so like, let's give them what they're asking for. You know, like they have a question, let's answer it. They don't need to invent questions for them to answer. Like, what are they looking for along that journey, along that process? Just answer yeah. their, their stupid questions. But, you know, but the other thing that I think that's really key with a persona too is by talking to your customers, you understand the words they use, Ooh, you know, and yeah. you can create content that uses the words they use and how they would describe something rather than making up from your vendor perspective, you know, that probably doesn't match anybody's perspective. Right. And so, you know, but you learn the words they use and what level they're on. And, and what I find with a lot of B2B content writers is that we try to be professional and we, and it makes our writing stilted. And the easy example to use is, you know, as I'll say when I'm on stage at a conference, how many of you have put the word leverage in a piece of content lately? And all these hands <laughs> will go up, you know? And then I'll look at them and say, why didn't you simply use the word use? Why can't you just say, use this to do that instead of leverage this to do that? It's fancy. Why do we have to use the fancier word? But it's not easy to, is easy to comprehend. So when you think about it yeah. and you think about readers' behavior, what do they do? They go out and they scan. And they say, is this worth me slowing down to really read it? Or mm -hmm. should I just scan for the high points and move on? Well, if it's hard for them to get, 
I mean, how many times have you sat in front of a web page and realized you've read the same paragraph four times and you still have no idea what the frick it says? Right. You know? And that's what happens when we're trying to be important. You know. Right. And then sometimes it, it's because the paragraph didn't actually say anything. They're just right. using those flashy words, to your point. And I think the the overall personas, the buying has shifted. We, we sense that we can smell that BS. Oh, it's stinky. And we're just like, Oh, they're just trying to manipulate me. They're just trying to throw these flashy words. They don't mean anything. And we're kind of turned off by it as opposed to, I mean, and it was a recent conversation. I think it was Peter Fader just saying that, you know, we're trying to make all these really good looking videos and graphics where big enterprises realized they make those graphics look too good. We don't trust them. It's like an ad. Right. So they've been kind of dumbing down and reducing the resolution and quality of their images mm-hmm. so that they don't appear too fake. Okay, you know, so, so it might even look like you recorded on your iPhone. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right? I mean, because that's what authentic is, you know, right. somebody walking down the street talking in their iPhone, but which I would trip and kill myself. So that will never happen for me. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but be, the other thing that'd is- That'd be really authentic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Oh, geez. But the other thing, too, is how many companies do you know that on their about page, it says we are the leading provider of Mm. my question is how many leading providers could there possibly be in a category? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So why do we all say that? You know, I have a company right now that is nowhere close to being the leading provider. They're a great contender, but they are nowhere near the leading provider. But what do you think it says on their about page? What if you are the leading provider? What do you say? Because everyone else is saying it. Well, there's a lot of different ways to say it. I have another provider that says we're the top rated vendor on Gita Crowd. Yeah. You know, or you could say, yeah, right, right. You yeah. know, and they are. And, you know, but I mean, there's there's different ways to say it. It always uh, feels weird know, to, to say, you know, number one, because I feel like I'm like a restaurant. I am the number one restaurant for, you know, a number one Italian oh, cuisine. And, Quite frankly, people aren't going to buy from you because you say you're number one. I mean, it used to be in the mm. old days, it, there was a saying, you can't be, get fired for buying IBM. Right. Do you think that's because IBM said we're number one? No, it's because of the reputation that preceded them. Right. Right. And so what we have to think more about is it's not so much about what we say about ourselves is what other people say about us, mm-hmm. but also how we present ourselves to the world. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's just different. When you say it about yourself, it's just like everybody who p- proclaims themselves to be a guru yeah. on LinkedIn or social media or whatever. <laughs> I mean, what do you think when you see that? I don't think, oh, yeah, they probably are. I think, <laughs> nice try. Right. You know? Okay. <laughs> but, All right. You know, so, I mean, there's a lot to be said about being a little subtle about it, you know, and talking right. more about your strengths. Why are you number one? I'll see your million followers and be pretty impressed. You don't need to call yourself a yeah. guru. Well, exactly. You know, so when the people who call themselves guru have 10 followers, you know. Right, right. Yeah, so true. And so whether it's the images or the words, you know, being authentic in that and not trying to be haughty or more than you are confident, but using the words that we use to make it easier to digest, you know, don't make something that your brain has to really think about what is the impact of leveraging? Well, you're going to use this thing and the result you're going to get is X. Like it's simple. True. Yeah. Very true. So who are you? How did you become the super (laughs) sage 
wizardress of the marketing world. Take us back. Take us back. Like little Ardeth days. Did you always, were you always um, going to be a marketer? No, I was going to be a veterinarian. But you don't want really? to go all the way back. I'm old. This could take a long time. Yeah. Oh, we, got, we, got, we got gigabytes of storage on this but thing. So we can essentially, I was, I was in the hotel business. I was general manager for hotels and country clubs. And I have a degree in English literature. So I've always been a writer. Oh, cool. And I was waiting for a liver transplant back in 2000. 1999, I guess. And I was unemployable because I was yellow, right? My wolf period, I refer to this as, right? Seriously, like how yellow? Like Well, the whites of my eyes were yellow. My skin had a yellow tinge, everything, because my liver couldn't process all the bile. No kidding. So even though, you know, when I got tired quickly or whatever, but I was unemployable essentially, right? Nobody was going to hire me to be their general manager of anything when I was glow in the dark yellow. And so my sister called me and said, I want you to come to Minnesota and run a company for me. I want to start a technology company. And I said, yeah, uh sure. Right. I said, go get funding. Well, she went and got funding. Really? (laughs) And then my husband said, okay, I'll agree that we can go, but I'm giving you five years and I want to come back to California because I don't like the Midwest. I grew up in Pennsylvania. I'm not doing it. So I said, okay, great. So we moved to Minneapolis and little did I know that I would get my liver transplant there. I had been on the list for six years. And when I moved to the Midwest, it never occurred to me that I would get it there. I always thought I'd go back to California, but the list was so long in Cal. And so when I moved to Minneapolis, your seniority transfers. And so I ended up getting my liver transplant six months after I moved there. But anyways, we started this technology company and my sister's a technology genius, you know, um, just she didn't know how to run a company. So I was doing that for her. But think back to the year 2000 and first ever iteration of marketing automation software designed for marketers to use and, and also run your website. Now think back to the year 2004 corporate websites, brochure sites, Yeah, right? They had taken their paper brochures and they had put them online. And so companies would buy the software and they'd take their brochure site and they'd Mm -hmm. move that content into the new technology and they'd say, nothing changed. Mm -hmm. And I was the only non-techie in the company and I was a writer and I'd run businesses forever and I go out and I look at this content and I think, well, Jesus really sucks. You know, this <laughs> yeah. is gonna work. no wonder nobody's engaging. Right. And so I started helping them rewrite their content and things started happening. And so they started hiring me to do work for them, you know, to help them succeed using the technology. And so in 2007, I realized that I had enough companies that wanted my help. And of course my husband had gone back to California on the day five years later and took the dogs and said drop by (laughs) so I was commuting from Minneapolis to California and the worst part was like right after Christmas or New Year's when I'd go home and get off the plane and it was 50 below in Minneapolis yeah it was 80 in Palm Desert yeah is that is that why he did that well yeah (laughs) because I'm like why am I doing this I've been to Minneapolis in February for the Uh, Super Bowl and that was that was cold and I'm a wimpy California weather girl (laughs) no But uh, so anyways, in 2007, I decided to take the leap and become a consultant. And that same year, 
uh, my literary agent called me and said, can you turn what you've been writing about on your blog into a book? And I said, well, of course. Wow. And so that's how I became a consultant and got my first book published. And um, it was for me, uh, right place, right time. Wow. So I never planned to become this. And I think the difference for me in marketing is that I used to run companies. So I understand financials, yep. um, you know, and I'm interested in B2B because of the complexity of the story, you know, versus B2C where I had spent my earlier part of my career. And I just seem to what I discovered when I worked for my sister is that I have this ability to look at technology and understand it and be able to write about it, simplify it, talk about it understand why people are interested in it and so um, that's how I got to be uh, a consultant doing this work you know and I I think my bluntness precedes me because I just don't have time to waste on messing around with this stuff so yeah I tend to be I'm I'm known for being rather blunt so (laughs) which is fine with me (laughs) be direct that's what made this conversation fun for sure you know, now was that book, that first one based on the blog, was that the e-marketing strategies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the first one. And the second one was Digital Relevance. And I'm working on a third one, so Holy which cow. is going to be about uh, retention. So given really? the change in business models now, it's no longer about, you know, when I first started in this business, it was about selling the big heavy lift, on-site implementation, custom build technology now everything's SaaS, right you can month to month you can switch in a heartbeat and so what are we doing now to drive retention and we've got to start focusing on that and how do we do it and how does what you the content you use and the way you talk to people change from you know buyer to customer to advocate you know how do you drive all of that so right that's that's one of the things i'm looking at and we need to make that shift so Mm. I like it. I, I mean, I, I'm looking at your profile here on Amazon. Digital relevance, e-marketing strategies for the complex sale. Fantastic. Yep. And it's funny, the first book is kind of has been outselling the second book because people finally caught up with what I was writing about in the first book. Which <laughs> yeah, I think you're an oracle. Kind of you're too ahead of your time. <laughs> so, you know, by the time they catch up to the second book, I should be retired. And by the time they catch up to the third book, if I get done writing it, I'll be dead. So. <laughs> right, right, and not in there Minnesota at least. So at least no. it'll be somewhere warm. <laughs> exactly. So I have a question for you. I, you know, all this running of hotels and and businesses and marketing and consulting. If you were to go back and advise yourself, let's say after you got out of school, um, you know, you get the English degree, the business degree, you're gonna go start running some hotels and you know, the health challenges, what would you advise yourself if you could go back in time and, well, you know, at the beginning of your career, what would you tell yourself? Well, I don't know if I can get all the way back to the beginning of my career, but I'll oh, tell wherever. you what, what yeah. having a transplant does for you. Back at the time I had my transplant, you couldn't get a partial. So somebody had to die for you to get the organ. Got well, it. you can't sit around and pray for someone to die for God's sakes, you know? Right. And so, but what you learn, and at the time I had the transplant, it was 70, 30, um, 70 against my making it through the surgery. Really? Those aren't, very, those aren't very good odds. They've since changed dramatically over the years, but remember 20 years ago, this is what it was. And so the biggest thing that I learned is to take risks. If there's something you want to do, go do it. You don't know how much time you have, 
you know, and you need to be able, and luckily my husband was always the one who stood behind me and said, go do that. I'm here, you know, and Mm -hmm. that was always a great thing for me, you know, to be able to do that um, because it's, it's hard to do on your own, but taking risks, I think is something that if you want something, go for it. Mm -hmm. What's the worst thing that could happen? Really? I mean, you know, we get all tied up and well, I won't have an income. What if I lose my house? Well, what if you do buy another one? Right. Oh, make it back. You know, I mean, I spent every dime that we had amassed when I was waiting for a trans transplant when I wasn't working. So when I got my transplant in 2000, I was 40 and I had to rebuild my finances all over again from scratch. And I went and saw a financial advisor earlier this year and I'm almost there. I can almost retire and I turn 60 next year. So I still have a long ways to go working, but I was able to rebuild everything. So you've got to take risks, you know, and you need to go after what you want to do, do something that makes you happy. I mean, when I discovered that I could actually make a living creating personas and stories for businesses, you know, that help them get customers and make sales. I was the happiest person in the world. I love what I do every day, but who thought, you know, back in the day, who thought you could make money doing that? Right. No. And eventually I'll go back to writing fiction. You know, I love writing fiction, but I make a living doing something I love every single day and I get paid very well for it. What more could you ask for ever? That's perfect. It's how you you do what you love. Exactly. You got to go figure out what that is and don't let anybody stop you from doing it. You know, I read about all the time. A lot of my friends this year are writing books about the un-American dream, you know, how we yep. need to stop doing the hustle, you know, and yeah, Carlos wrote that. And then Michael Brenner's coming out with a book, Mean People Suck, you know, how we need really? empathy in the world. I yeah, like Michael. It's, I do too. It's coming out next month. Okay. And Brian Solis wrote a book about, um, you know, what being online and being connected all the time is doing to our lifestyles and what it did to his and how he had to overcome that to continue to function. You know, I mean, there's all this, suddenly this year, it's like all these books are coming out about all of this. We need to find balance. And, you know, it's something I've always had because I, you know, it's the way I was built and I didn't grow up with tech, you know? So (laughs) it's, Mm -hmm. um, I'm one of those people who can shut it off at the end of the day and leave my cell phone in the office until I come in here in the morning, you know, type of thing. But, uh, you have to draw boundaries somewhere and you have to go do what you love. Otherwise, yeah. what's it worth? You're only here for a specific amount of time and you don't know how long that's going to be. Right. You know, I had so much I wanted to do and I was terrified I wasn't going to get the chance. So now I've had the chance and I've done a lot of what I wanted to do and I still have more. So what an incredible lesson to, I mean, to be blessed with the health of that and having that be successful, but also the, you know, people call it a second chance or whatever. I don't know if you've called it that, but just like, okay, got it. I'm going to go do this. Like, like, it's like the big slap upside the head. Yeah. Come on, get out there. Go. I wish nobody else to have that kind of slap, but you know, like learn it here on the podcast. You don't need to experience it yourself, but exactly. Yeah. So, but it, but it does pay off. And I'll tell you what, when you're happy doing what you're doing, it will come, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, and it's funny being a consultant because it, if you don't work, you don't get paid. 
You know what I mean? There's not a paycheck coming in every, every two weeks or whatever, like you have when you have a regular job. And, but if you work and if you do good work, it will come. I have never once had to worry about making a living since mm-hmm. I walked out and became a consultant. Never once. It's kind of counterintuitive and sort of mystical and magical, be, that whole idea of doing what you enjoy. I think a lot of us grew up in the era of like, just do the responsible thing. Well, we and, have all the reasons why we can't. We do. You know? Yeah. We do. And you have to give it up. So you really do. You have to look at it and say, is this a real reason or am I just scared? You know, right. well, go be scared. Go do it anyway. It's probably the second. It's probably that you're scared. I, I'm, I'll admit to that. Yeah. It's like, ooh, I could accomplish this dream or, but, uh, you know, all these blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah it's, Excuses, I say. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me real quick about that fiction writing. I know you'd mentioned that before. Well, I've always been a fiction writer. I think my mom said I started writing stories when I was four years old. Wow. But, or not four years old, in the fourth grade. Four years old, I wasn't writing anything. The but, dog <laughs> named Spot. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I belong to Romance Writers of America. I've done... Um, wait, wait, retreat. what's it called? Romance Writers of America? Romance Writers of America. Hello. I've done retreats with best-selling authors to learn how to build characters, how to sustain a story over 100,000 words those kinds of things. I actually had a novel um, hit the finals for what they call Golden Heart, which is an unpublished novel. So I've never published any fiction, but that's how close I got. And then I quit writing fiction when I became a consultant, of course. So I will go back to it. But actually, uh, everything I learned about building characters for fiction is about building composite sketches of different wow. people to create a character. And it's actually what drove the methodology I used to build personas. And so it's the same principle, you know, and you have to build, for example, when you're writing fiction and you have a character, if you do something, if you write something that is out of character for that character, it doesn't ring true. And you blow the suspension of disbelief that you have mm. to create in order for people to stick with you through that story. It's the same thing with a persona for business. If you write content that isn't true to that persona, it won't engage them, you know? And so, but it's really building a character to sustain a fiction story and building a persona to sustain the problem to solution story, right? To get them to buy is basically the same thing. Wow. So that's, that's where that all comes from. And, you know, it's, um, it's really interesting, but that's, that's how it came to be that. That's how I got into doing that. I started looking at it and I thought, well, heck, if you just apply this to business people, it's the same thing. It is. So, I yeah. love that not only are you doing what you love, but you've also tied your, even your original passion from when you grew up to how you make money and to how you help mm-hmm. people and provide value yeah. and all that. It's the fiction writing come to real life and the B2B journey and personas understanding the characters who who are the characters we have here yeah i know Um, and who knew you could do that (laughs) right who knew there's a career in that and and quite a good one with books and speaking at stages and everything i I think you know when i um one of the things that i wrote was a a play i wrote a play when i was deployed to iraq actually was on guard duty for a certain period of time bored out of my mind for like 18 hours a day you can only read one james patterson novel then you're like okay i'm not gonna read another (laughs) book today i finished this one start to finish i gotta go do something else and so i I wrote a play and 
and and I, I hear what you're saying because I didn't necessarily I, I sort of knew the beginning and then I really knew the characters were based on some people that I kind of dropped into those roles I kind of knew and knew who they were and then I just sort of put them in a room and let them interact with each other mm -hmm. I didn't even know what they're gonna do they I know it's, just, it's interesting oh, isn't yeah. it I love that yeah yeah, and even the end, like I don't even know like any of these things and the the relationships. But it's like, what would this person say to this person if they were chatting right now? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. if this person who likes humor is being silly, and this person who doesn't like humor, what's their response going to be? But to your point, it's always that staying in character. There, uh -huh. and if you break that, then that whole thing falls apart. And it's and it's fake. right because it's not believable. Right. Yeah. But it's right. a, I think the most interesting thing I ever learned in character development is when you, you know, in fiction, there's always a villain, right? Mm. So who's the antagonist? Who's right. keeping them from getting what they want? Right. And the thing that was really interesting when I was first learning to write was um, in the class I was in, they said, you know, the villain doesn't wake up in the morning and say, I'm a bad person. Right. They wake up in the morning and say, today's going to be a great day. I'm going to go kill 30,000 people. Isn't Yikes. that wonderful? Right. You know, but I mean, that's their mindset. Right. And so if you write a villain, like they're ashamed of themselves or they're bad or they think they're bad or what, that's not who they are. Right. They're the villain because that's who they are. And so you have to really be able to embrace that, you know? And, and so it was, it's a lot about, stepping into somebody else's shoes and seeing things from their perspective, mm -hmm. which is exactly what we're being tasked to do with our customers. Right. Right. And so, but it's really interesting. I've never forgotten that. And it's kind of like when I think something, I think I know the answer to something or whatever, and I look at it and I can feel it's not right. I'm like, they didn't wake up and say today, I'm going to be a bad person. <laughs> you know, right. So you have to be true to who they are. That happens a lot with the interdepartmental type things like sales, marketing. They're not trying to do each other wrong. They maybe are using the wrong language. They're probably creating the wrong, you know, marketing, sending the form fills, like you had said at the very beginning. They they didn't set out to do that. Maybe they didn't know that what they're doing is sending a crappy lead. Um, and so just kind of take a step back. You know, we're on the team here um, and, you know, we're not, no one's the waking up the being the bad guy like you're saying yeah yeah very exactly. very cool well this has been fantastic thank you so much for being on here where can people reach out connect you know social medias where can they get more of this yeah well thank you so much for having me it's been great fun and uh, my website is marketinginteractions.com on twitter i'm artist421 and if you just look up my name on LinkedIn, you'll find me, you know, please reach out, connect, say hi, what have you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and don't be a stalker. Tell her, tell her you found her on the podcast and which one. And um, yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. We'll put, by the way, put all those URLs in the show notes mm -hmm. uh, and everything too. Uh, do you have any conferences coming up that you're going to? I know you speak at a lot of different I places. I do. Next week I'll be in Los Angeles at B2B Marketing Expo. Okay. So I'm talking about, and this is a, a new one for me, but it's come up that a lot of my, a lot of companies are dropping the ball in the middle. Like they generate the lead mm. and then there's like an eight month sales cycle, but there's no content in the middle. And then they have the end of sale, sale content, but there's this gap. So I'm talking about, you know, the dirty underbelly of mid funnel marketing, if you will. 
Ooh, so I'm like talking that. about that. And then in the middle of October, I'll be in Washington, D.C. at Marketing Profs. Oh, cool. So, and then I'm teaching, if you want to learn how to work with personas, I'm doing a persona workshop at DX Summit in Chicago on November 4th. November 4th. Uh, and that's the DX. DX what? Summit. Summit. Yeah, okay. in Chicago. Is that like an extra add-on for the summit or is that just a part, like sign up for the summit and that's a... It's the first day is workshop day. Oh, so very cool. I start off in the morning working... Uh, talking about personas and then Carrie Bodine follows me talking about mapping the customer journey. Mm. So how personas work into that. Oh, that's so cool. That's a good nice. progression. Yeah. Very good. I'll have to check that out. You said November 4th. Mm -hmm. Well, very cool. Well, Arda, thank you so much again for being on here. This is fantastic. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Fun conversation. For sure. And for everyone out there listening, I mean, this is a great like opportunity if you've learned something here, and I know you have, because I literally have two pages of notes over here, uh, then, then share this with someone. Be a thought leader to one other person today. Even two. Now you're really a thought leader. But like, get this information to other people's hands, the personas, understanding the buyer, um, the different parts of a persona. Just, and, and go tell Sirius to jump off a cliff. But this is, this is good <laughs> stuff here. Um, amazing. And and uh, I will definitely be uh, having to go over these notes again. So, Arda, thank you again for being on here. Yep, you're welcome. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. And everyone else out there, we'll catch y'all next time. This has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. See ya.